Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. On this episode of the AAF Exchange, we'll discuss the latest in regulatory policy from the Biden administration with AAF's Dan Bosch and Dan Goldbeck. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. So let's jump right into things today. Well, we do have a lot to talk about. Many, including myself, assumed that we'd see this wave of regulations from the new Biden administration. But every week, it seems your week in reg starts with a line. It's been another quiet week in the pages of the Federal Registrar. So were we wrong? What's going on here? Yeah, I mean, it has been a little surprising as we've been sort of tracking the progress of the Biden administration. They're responsible for only about $1.4 billion in costs and just over $7 million hours of paperwork which is definitely lower than expected, but it is still early on. I think part of it is they're trying to try to take their time so that they dot all their I's, cross their T's, so they avoid some of the legal challenges that we saw, particularly for some of the Trump administration rules. And also uh, they're dealing with uh, a new memo called Modernizing Regulatory Review that I think Dan Bosch has covered fairly extensively. And I think that that's affecting how they're producing rules. So it's just taking a little bit more time. But all that said, um, going back to the whole tracking aspect of it, they're only about a million hours behind the Obama administration was at this point. And so it's not some huge outlier. They're still sort of getting there. Yeah, I think the only thing I would add to that is just we certainly have seen no shortage of executive action from this administration. They're ahead of their recent predecessors in terms of executive orders and memoranda to agencies. So there's certainly a lot of rulemaking activity happening behind the scenes. Yeah, we we did just get this uh, unified agenda. The Biden administration recently uh, released their first unified agenda. Could you start just by reminding us what the unified agenda is and then outlining what the administration's UA told us? Sure. Well, it's a list of regulatory actions that the administration is working on, and it's published twice a year, once in the fall and once in the spring. Uh, This was the spring edition that just came out. And basically, it's just it's a list of everything that the administration is working on and will be either, um, you know, releasing final rules, proposed rules, or even just doing some behind the scenes work over the next year. Um, So it's kind of an indication of where an administration is going to go. Um, And especially since this is the first one of the Biden administration, it's the first real clue that we have in terms of what are their regulatory priorities for this uh, term. Yeah, so I know one thing that we've talked about in the podcast a lot is uh, that the Trump back back during the Trump administration years um, is they really made regulatory policy front and center in their domestic agenda. But the problem with using regulations for policies is the next administration just comes in and you know, does away with those uh, regulations, overturns them. So what are the big uh, Trump regulations that the Biden administration has overturned uh, and what remains? So, yeah, this aspect, I think probably the main action was the regulatory freeze at the very beginning of the administration that placed a number of the Trump administration rules at the very end kind of on ice uh, so that they could further review them. And this is a pretty typical thing across any given administration. And so a lot of the actual reversals are still kind of in the developmental stage because of that, because anything that was truly final under Trump has to go under the whole process again of proposed rule, final rule, et cetera. And so 
we're still seeing some in the development stage. There's uh, actually on the congressional side, there's the Congressional Review Act. Uh, we're actually seeing some activity on that this week. The House is set to vote, I think, on three resolutions under that law um, repealing Trump rules. And they're all expected to, I think, pass and then go on to President Biden's signature. Um, in terms of rules that have actually been repealed sort of administratively, probably the most significant one in terms of economic impact that we've seen has been the public charge rule. It was an immigration rule. We might cover that a little bit later here. But and that was kind of an interesting situation, though, because it's more the administration now implementing a court order on that rule. And so it's it got a little bit bumped up because of that. Yeah. So let's walk through some of the, the new Biden administration rules that more specifically, um, some of them probably returns from the Obama era. So the first one, uh, the Biden administration has made climate policy a top priority. Um, we heard that in the campaign. And we've heard a lot of messaging around that, especially recently. What does the unified agenda tell us about the administration's plans in this area? Yeah, well, I think what we're going to see is an expansion of some of the Obama era rules on climate change, um, particularly, I think the, the foremost one is when it comes to fuel economy standards for vehicles. Um, the Trump administration scaled back what the Obama administration did. Uh, and the Biden agenda seems to indicate pretty strongly that not only are they going to bring back what the Obama administration did, but they want to make those economy standards so stringent uh, to the maximum extent possible. And so while we don't know what that means, the Obama rule was the most expensive rule we've ever tracked in our regulation rodeo database. Uh, so I would expect the Biden administration rule to be, if not, uh, I mean, certainly at least as expensive, if not significantly more expensive than that rule. Wow. And yeah, I think uh, one of the aspects, too, of all this is you're seeing sort of a shift in the politics of particularly climate, I think, from even the Obama years. While it was still definitely a priority, and you had these pretty major rules. You've seen a shift, particularly in the Democratic Party, towards a greater emphasis on climate policy. And that's, I think, reflected in the Biden platform during the campaign and I think that's just going to show sort of the trend towards a more expansive approach to this. Yeah, yeah, I've definitely seen a lot more of that in the recent years. Yeah, and another, um, you know, a good example of that, I think, is we're going to see the administration here going strongly towards methane rules, which is another potent greenhouse gas. It's more potent than carbon dioxide. Um, they're going to propose more stringent standards on new oil and natural gas production wells once you know, as Dan alluded to earlier, there's the Congressional Review Act vote this week. That's going to undo a Trump administration rule that undid an Obama administration rule. Um, so we're going to see the Biden administration sort of expand upon that original Obama administration rule and then go even further and for the first time regulate existing sources of methane releases. So that, that'll that be a pretty substantial climate rule to watch as well. Yeah. So you, you've mentioned the Congressional uh, Review Act a couple of times. So just as a quick reminder, can you just remind people what exactly that is and what what what's going on there. Sure, it, it's a it's a legislative action that allows Congress to if um, a resolution is passed by both houses of Congress and ultimately signed by the president um, to get rid of a regulation. Um, it's rarely used because it requires the president's signature. So a president is not going to sign something that undoes its own regulation. So typically when we see a use is at the beginning of a new administration like we have right now. 
Mm-hmm. So it's, it's like a lot of those 11th hour rules kind of thing. Is, does that play into it? Is that the same thing? Yeah, there's a particular process of following different dates and everything of how many rules they can actually affect. Um, but yeah, there's this crossover period that you can sort of, when a new message comes in, the new Congress and everything can look at and review and essentially repeal those rules. Gotcha. Let's jump over to labor policy. That's another area that the Biden administration has really ramped up policy towards. And on the congressional side, we have the PRO Act that it continues to, to make its way. But this administration is touting itself as the most pro-union administration ever. What will they do through regulations for unions? Sure. Yeah, there's plenty on the docket there. Uh, we're seeing you know, already proposed rules in terms of repealing the Trump rules on independent contractor status, which has huge implications for the sort of gig economy workforce, also the joint employment standard, repealing the Trump version of that, and that has implications for particularly franchises in terms of how employees are counted under a franchise. Then also even just today, we had a proposed rule drop uh, that changes, again, a Trump era rule on tip pooling. And so that's kind of some stuff that's in the works currently. Looking to the uh, unified agenda, there's, you know, Things that pop out are modernizing the Davis-Bacon Act, implementing President Biden's order that would increase the minimum wage for federal contractors to $15 an hour. These obviously have significant implications for any sort of infrastructure package as that works its way through and also has implications for union contracts that are pegged to those rates in certain instances. Actually, interesting point to this um, is about a month ago, there was a relatively mundane rule that rescinded Form T1, which is this financial reporting requirement for unions. Not a huge impact. It's about $10 million in savings, but it kind of demonstrates concisely what the overall posture is. Of This is an instance of the administration cutting red tape for unions. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of signifies kind of the direction they're taking things, I think. Interesting. And then we have immigration, obviously another big point for this administration huge divergence from the last administration, obviously. Is the administration looking to do anything on that front through regulation? Yeah, so actually it's interesting because this was one area where the Trump administration was heavily regulatory, um, you know, despite their best deregulatory efforts. Uh, And so this is sort of one area where we can expect the Biden administration to be deregulatory. Um, And so Dan, you know, briefly mentioned the public charge rule and what that rule did uh, was it made it harder for someone to, you know, claim immigration status or be, or to be accepted under certain immigration status if the government thinks that they're going to be using too many benefits, essentially. So that rule's already been rescinded because a court struck it down. So the Biden administration just had to basically take it off the books. There's been a couple of others. One, the Trump administration rule made it more expensive to fill out the forms and, and submit those forms to immigration agencies. So that obviously has a deterring effect on immigration. And then the last one just made it harder to claim asylum. Uh, and so the Biden administration will get rat, rid of that rule as well. So we should see some improvement, at least, in how able people are to take access to some of these immigration measures. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's interesting too with immigration. Kind of going back to the labor side too, there's this theme running through now for the past few years that in the absence of some sort of legislative consensus on all of these topics, 
administrations, both Democrat and Republican, are turning to the administrative side of things to really implement policy. And so I think you're just going to see a continuation of that in the absence of congressional action. Yeah, it sounded like in the beginning of the year when you and I talked in that uh, it was basically going to be that was going to be their main avenue for getting some of their policy across more to you know, Dan Goldbeck's point there. When when I read the week in regs or sometimes when you guys are going through the federal registrar, we get these weird, almost wacky regulations. Um, any of those regulations that caught your eyes? So, yeah, I think uh, as we were going through the unified agenda recently, Dan Bosch covered in sort of his review of it, but they uh, they included a repeal of the definition of showerhead rule out of Department of Energy. That was kind of randomly a big deal for President Trump. Uh, he included a lot of his speeches and everything, but that looks like it's on its way out now. Also, there's a HUD rule affirmatively furthering fair housing, which deals with these kind of mundane reporting requirements for housing authorities and all that. Also kind of randomly caught the eye of Trump back in the day, but that looks like it's going to be changed back to sort of the Obama era standard. Then sort of another one I came across and also one that's kind of getting some news buzz lately is plans from the FDA to ban menthol cigarettes. So that's interesting just in terms of its specificity. Uh, but I think that there's some interesting dynamics there in terms of the political backlash to that, that we'll wait and see how far that actually goes, though. Yeah, and I think the only other one I'd add, it's, it's not really a quirky one, I guess, but one of the big Trump administration rules on the environmental area was its Council on Environmental Quality wrote new regulations on how to implement the National Environmental Policy Act, which more people know it as NEPA, um, that put in strict timelines for when you're reviewing a project under NEPA, you have to come up with a decision one way or another within a couple of years or a certain time frame, depending on the project. That rule is likely going to be rolled back and then replaced with something else um, that's less friendly to having a certain time frame for getting a decision on these things. So that'll have some probably negative economic consequences. One of my favorite graphics in your week in regs is the graphic that compares the Obama administration to the Trump administration to the Biden administration in terms of overall costs and impacts of their regulatory agenda. So what what can we anticipate in terms of the overall costs and impacts of the Biden administration's regulatory agenda as you see it now? Yeah, I think it's it's hard to put a, an exact figure on it. Um, I think, you know, because as we talked about here, a lot of the Biden administration policy sort of mirrors that of the Obama administration. I think a good place to start is by looking at what the Obama administration did. Based on the rules that we tracked in our database, the Obama administration put an average of $110 billion in new regulatory costs each year over its term. Just contrast that with the Trump administration, which put about 10 billion each year in their term. So I think you can use the Obama administration as a baseline. And then since the Biden administration wants to go beyond that in many instances, I think we'll probably see a higher figure. Interesting. So let's set the unified agenda aside and turn to um, sort of the other big regulatory news out of the administration. And that's the commitment to the United Nations for the U.S. admissions reduction and something called the nationally determined contribution um, as required to rejoin the Paris Agreement. So first, could you tell us what this agreement does and what it says about how the administration plans to address this issue? Yeah, well, the NDC is basically the formal submission of the U.S. to the U.N. under the Paris Agreement saying, you know, or essentially summarizing how the U.S., 
how much they plan to cut, and a little bit about how they plan to do that. Um, and so the U.S. plans to cut emissions from 2005 levels about 50% by the year 2030. And so it's clear from the plan the Biden administration expects to get what I think is a lot more cooperation from Congress than they're actually going to get. I think we're already seeing that. Um, and it's also clear that they're going to rely on regulation where they can to make some of these cuts. Yeah, when I first read, looked at your papers and read read some of Doug's dish, it seemed like an incredibly ambitious plan. But you wrote a series of papers on the president's climate proposals for admissions reductions in the Paris Agreement. You look specifically at three sectors in the proposal. That's methane, electricity, and vehicles and aviation. Um, first, could you give us an overview about what this proposal means for these sectors as a whole? And then we can dive into each of them individually. Sure. So we sort of picked out these sectors in particular because of their significance. Uh, transportation and electricity generation are number one and two emitters, respectively, in terms of the share of greenhouse gases currently emitted. And then as Dan Bosch mentioned earlier, there's also methane, and it's a much more potent greenhouse gas than even CO2. And so these are the areas where if you're really going to try to get to this ambitious goal, you need to address them. And so what we did with this is kind of staying within our wheelhouse because as Dan alluded to, the NDC includes a lot of non-regulatory provisions that would involve Congress. But since we're the regulatory policy team here, we kind of focus more on that. And we also were able to sort of identify rough examples, mostly based upon Obama era examples of what a future regulatory framework might look like. And so that helps sort of frame our analysis there. And I think just kind of consistent themes that we'll get into, I think, further here across all three areas are that you're going to have implementation challenges due to this tighter window of trying to meet a goal by 2030 when you can really only get rules done by maybe 2024 at best. And then there's also the sort of well-documented aspect of this that every marginal ton of abatement gets more and more expensive just because you have to change technology in some way and that just takes more research and more dollars etc on that front and finally it's just the tenuous legal nature of the regulatory powers in question we sort of took for analysis a fairly expansive view of the regulatory powers as they are but in the real world these have all been challenged before and will likely be challenged even further because they're going for even more rigorous standards than the ones under Obama. Yeah, and as we saw under the Trump administration, I think as you've said many times throughout this podcast, you know, we have to expect those legal challenges and it's just going to make things a lot longer to take a lot longer to implement. But you mentioned methane as a big one. Um, so let's start there. Why is this important and will the administration um, be able to reach its goal in this area? Yeah, well, methane's important because it's far more potent greenhouse gas um, than carbon dioxide. It doesn't last as long in, in the air, but still its potency is pretty high. So it's important to get reductions in that area if you want to achieve anything close to what the goals are in the NDC. Um, and so it was sort of nice to see uh, in the unified agenda, actually. They basically spelled out the kind of regulations that we ended up analyzing for the purposes of this paper, uh, which were expanded requirements on new oil and natural gas production wells, and then setting standards for existing wells. So 
that's what we looked at. And even if you take the most optimistic sort of time frame, um, going back to Dan's point from a few minutes ago, there's pretty much no way that even if they set standards on every possible aspect that they could set standards for, there's basically no way they could have that done in time to have the effects needed by 2030 that they would need to happen. And it certainly would be at an enormous cost. So despite the fact that methane is, you know, one of the big regulations they're looking at here, um, it is very unlikely they'll be able to achieve what they need to do. Your next paper talked about uh, electricity generation. Why is this important and what did you find in your analysis? Well, electricity generation uh, is important because it's second overall top emitter. About a quarter of current emissions come from the electricity generation system. And also you need to think about in terms of as we go forward and look to rely more on things like electric vehicles, you have to charge that in somewhere. If you're charging into an electric grid that is still fossil fuel dependent and it's emitting a ton because of that, then how far are you really getting on that? And so it's going to be increasingly important in that respect. And so the NDC in particular wants to put the country on a trajectory to get to 100% carbon free electricity by 2035. And so for the purposes of this analysis, we came across this uh, proposal from NRDC that uh, they deemed the Clean Power Plan 2, so kind of basing it on the Obama-era Clean Power Plan, but obviously more rigorous to try to get even further. And it got to about uh, 910 million tons emitted as of 2035 at a cost of about either between 6.2 billion to 13.1 billion. And the issues, though, with that is that, for, well, for one, 910 million tons is not zero, so it doesn't quite get to the NDC's stated goal there. And even if you kind of reapply, because this analysis that they did is from a couple of years ago, if you apply to sort of current baseline, you get to around 430 million tons uh, in terms of emissions in 2035, but that's still not zero, of course. And again, going back to sort of the implementation challenge, it took the Obama administration years to get its original well into its second term, I believe, to get its clean power plan through. And so the idea that it's going to get through within the next couple of years, even, particularly since there's not even really any texts out about it yet or anything like that, uh, creates an even tighter window. And so that just, again, creates all those issues. And of course, doubling back to the whole legal issue, the original clean power plan was stayed by the Supreme Court in 2016. It kind of went through this sort of legal limbo since then. Trying to do a tougher version of that, uh, particularly with well, people generally considered to be a more conservative Supreme Court than even then going forward, it, it's just tough to see how that goes through. Yeah, it's just it's tough to know if that plan is even legal, um, yeah. you know, as, to Dan's point. So that certainly will crimp their ability to meet their goal. Let's turn to our final sector, and that's transportation. What's important here and what do you guys find? Yeah, I think it's similar to the other issues that we've covered. I mean, there are some regulatory authorities that agencies can use to increase standards and make them more stringent, but the authorities that the administration is going to rely on are insufficient to do what needs to be done in the time frame alluded to. So the administration would have to look to Congress to get the uh, authorities to, to do some more in these areas. But even then, 
by the time Congress passes a law, if they pass a law, which I think is a huge if, then you know you still have years to actually implement some of these things and then go through the rulemaking process. So it's just it's tough to see how this stuff gets done by 2030. And it's also an interesting aspect too of the NDC itself is that as opposed to kind of the other couple areas that we focused on, they don't quite have a specific goal in mind for the transportation sector. Uh, and so I think that speaks to how they kind of want to leave it open-ended because perhaps they aren't sure of quite how far they can or are able to go. And so this is very much aspirational, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, but transportation is, you know, the most important sector in terms of emissions currently. And so it will, of course, be a huge part of that. Yeah. So, I mean, it does sound like in each of your conclusions to this that, you know, regulations isn't enough to accomplish the president's goals on these in these sectors. Uh, Congress needs to do something. I mean, what what would they need to do to meet these goals other than acting quickly? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some, I mean, some of the things that they could do potentially are explicitly expand the regulatory authority of agencies like EPA. Most of the Obama era regs and sort of the frameworks we're basing off of is based upon a 2007 Supreme Court decision that had this endangerment finding that essentially roped in greenhouse gases into sort of the Clean Air Act. But as we sort of discuss here, that's all still very legally tenuous and kind of cumbersome in how agencies can actually put forward these regulations under that framework. And so Congress could, you know, enact a revision to Clean Air Act to expand that. But I think if you just look at the past decade of political history, you look at the downfall of the cap and trade bill in 2009 and just the general tenor of Congress right now, the idea of expanding Clean Air Act is not likely. Another avenue, of course, perhaps Congress's favorite avenue is to spend more money. You see this in certain provisions of, you know, some of the infrastructure provisions being talked about in terms of, you know, providing funding for more renewables, for electric vehicle development, all sorts of sort of green technologies like that. And all that sort of falls along similar ideological lines. I think a lot of the pushback from Republicans to how expansive Democrats proposal has been has been on some of these climate issues in terms of how much are we going to push these subsidies into these technologies that in one way are a victim of their own success in that they're actually becoming more affordable on their own. And so what is the rationale behind throwing more dollars behind all that? So, you know, my next question here, uh, I think is a little obvious and maybe shouldn't even be asked, but, uh, you know, the political appetite for legislation like this, I, I assume just isn't really there. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. You know, we can't see Congress come to an agreement on pretty much anything at this point. Um, and so these issues are highly contentious um, and politically charged. So I don't I don't see any way that uh, the two parties come together on any of these yeah. in the near term, at least in, in the time frame that would need to happen to to make a real difference. And there's even there's even some interesting dynamics too. you know, going back to sort of the infrastructure debate here, you have sort of the Biden administration and its posture on not really being a fan of raising the gas tax to pay for some of the infrastructure stuff. And so that's an area where if you get into talking about things like carbon tax or other sort of fee-based things that deal with the climate side of things, there's kind of dynamics everywhere in terms of the pocketbook issues that make this 
a very tough thing for Congress to handle. And as Dan, you know, puts it, it's it's already a tough spot for them to begin with. Yeah. So wrapping up here, as regulations come with a cost to the economy, what would the cost to the economy be with the kind of regulations needed to meet Biden's proposals here? Um, and how would they compare to, say, the cost of like a carbon tax, for example? Yeah, well, if you compare it strictly just to a carbon tax, we've done research in the past here at AAF that shows that a carbon tax is twice as cost effective as regulation to achieving some of these goals. Uh, but even if you do those, they don't get you where you need to go. So relying strictly on regulation to do this would be extremely costly and ultimately completely insufficient to, to meet the, the need. Excellent. Well, thank you both for joining us. This was a great conversation. I'm sure we'll have you back. As you mentioned, the Unified Agenda comes out again uh, later this year. So we'll have to take a look, another look at that. And as you guys continue to track the progress. Thanks. All right. Sounds good. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.